I'd actually heard about this game before I picked it up and played it for this playthrough. Um, <clears throat> not, uh, it's, it's one of those weird things where I didn't play it mostly because I just had other things on my table. You know, not a deliberate decision to say, ah, I hate this game. But instead it was more of a, ah, oh, that sounds cool, and then I moved on. But I have to admit, seeing this game has made me really think how awesome this overall concept is. The game TV show thing. This is exactly the kind of thing I would love to do personally if, you know, time and money and access and resources and power and all that weren't actually a problem. If I wasn't some loser nobody talking in my studio to you guys, as you know, if I instead had the phenomenal cosmic power, I would love to do this kind of game-slash-show interwoven. Because I really feel that both television and video games kind of lean in the same axis when it comes to entertainment media and the type of stories and, and presentation you can show in both. The fact that your choices legitimately change which TV show you see as they're going through and alter some of the outcomes, that's also kind of awesome. And of course, we see some of the impact of that in the game itself. It's all great stuff, and I love the presentation of it. I was well over halfway through this game when I found out that the developing team... Well, obviously, okay, I knew they worked on Alan Wake. What I did not work was that this was some of the same developers who worked on Max Payne, which is funny, because right, I actually have it in my notes here. Right at the beginning of the game, I made this note about how similar this felt in many ways to Max Payne. Um, one of those situations where I'm just sitting here enjoying the flavor and presentation, even though it's a little bit on the cliched side. Because, let's be honest, the TV sections are very cliched. But they're still mostly good. Like, a net positive situation. The action sequences are typical TV action sequences. There's a lot of drama for drama's sake. Um, there's a lot of scenes where someone has the tense standoff, or sometimes they just kind of watch rather than doing anything. But there was enough good acting and good character moments that I was willing to overlook all of that and just kind of enjoy the presentation. And again, the fact that it was altered and, you know, altered in minor ways and still wove directly into the plot of the game, that's what kept me interested. That's what kept me engaged. And the whole time I'm like, yes. Rough approximation. I was like, yes. <laughs> um, I have to admit, though, Playing this game so relatively recent to having played Detroit Become Human is interesting because one of the things I loved about that game was how really, really nice the animation, the motion capture, and the voice actor was. Voice acting was on basically everyone. Connor being the obvious, outstanding, just, yes, Connor's amazing. Although, obviously, he's not the only one. There was a lot of good acting in that game. But I mention that because... Uh, it's it's kind of noticeable the difference between the video game side and the uh, and the TV side. And I have to admit, it's kind of a thing that pulled me out of it because on the TV side, well, it's actually the actors acting. Duh. On the video game side, well, again, it's the same actors doing the voice, but a lot of times, I mean. Again, I'm pulling back to that Max Payne thing. There are a lot of moments where you could tell, I mean, you could just see the video game AI functioning as the voice acting is going. And in some cases, there's a total disconnect between the two. I remember distinctly, there's one section while I was, while I was helping to escort Will uh, towards the early part of the game when you're trying to get out of the, the parking lot. And Will was just, like, going through this speech, and they were doing this back and forth, and he's just, like, following me, but then he's doing that thing where it kind of goes... Back and forth and back and forth. Completely and utterly disconnected from what he was saying. Again, that's to be expected, because it's a game, and that's how that works. 
But it was just kind of funny to me. I feel like this exact same concept could be basically done better now. And again, I point to Detroit, or Red Dead Redemption 2 if you prefer, but that's not quite a good example. I, I take that back. I point to Detroit, actually Marvel Spider-Man is another good example, as examples of games that I think could pull off this same concept now. Now granted, both of those were very high-budget games, and that brings me to the other interesting thing about this. As much as I am absolutely engaged with the concept, I can see why it didn't really catch on. Television really is its own little animal and has its own little budget problems and its own production issues. In fact, I can't help but notice that a huge number of the actors in this are primarily television actors, including Marshall Allman, uh, Alden Gillen, Sean Ashmore, who's done some movie stuff, obviously, uh, Dominic Mo Monaghan, again, probably pronouncing that incorrectly, Lance Reddick. Now, he is definitely much more of a t TV actor than anything else. Although, by the way, can I just say he nailed it? I really liked seeing him in this in this game. Like, a lot. I mean, I enjoyed his work a great deal in Horizon Zero Dawn. And so, the moment I saw him, I'm like, dude, that, that's, that's silence! Um, but anyways, I'm getting a little bit off topic. Please forgive me. But my point being, I understand that this is the kind of thing that would be far more difficult to approach than most other similar projects. At the same time, though, at the same time... I have to point out that depending on the specific types of scenes, it, not, it might actually be legitimately cheaper to go ahead and do the television cutscenes rather than the CGI cutscenes, rather than doing all of the, uh, the motion capture and the animation work and the lighting work and all the other stuff that has to go into the engine and the development of the game. I mean, there's a reason Command & Conquer did this and Dune before that, or the old Wing Commander series, to use another example. You remember that, right? Now, I mentioned those games very specifically. Wing Commander kept coming to mind to me in specific. Because in many ways, this feels like the next logical step. I'm going to keep... Uh, Wing Commander 3 is the one that's coming to mind most distinctly because it's the one I enjoyed the most uh, and played the most. But I want you to picture the way they do their cutscenes. Now, they had actual actors doing actual cutscenes on actual sets. But it was very toned down and most of those scenes were... 30 seconds long, occasionally a minute or two, just like most of those old things, you know, the mission briefings, like I just referenced in Dune or Command & Conquer. Commander, holding a prop here, and this prop tells me that I'm going to need you to go to this sector. We need you to kill all those people in that sector. It's very important. Don't fail me, Commander. Fade to black, right? Very simple. But here, like I said, it feels like the next proper step past that. So rather than having a single cutscene or a briefing being done live action, we have an entire section of the plot being done live action. And, again, that section of the plot is specifically being pushed by your choice immediately prior to it. You'll notice the structure is very rigid throughout the whole game. You play as Jack. Jack, 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 Jack. Gameplay switches over to... Paul, God, I, I just stalled on his name there. They always call him by his last name, and I don't know why. That always used to throw me, you know, Monarch Actual. Anyways, then you switch to play as Paul, and then he has his ability to see the future, so he sees the consequences of his choices, roughly, including little tidbits of the upcoming scenes, depending on which choice you play. Then you pick, then it kind of plays for a little bit more, and then live action sec section. I think that's a good format, personally. I think there's a lot of potential here. And I really hope that another large-budget studio, either AA or AAA, actually takes this idea and does something with it. Again, I would love to do something with this kind of a concept. Again, 
The only real downside with this is that you have to kind of limit the scope of the effects. You'll notice almost all of the special effects were on the video game side of thing, where it's a lot cheaper and easier to produce that kind of a thing. And, well, I mean, you couldn't do, like, for example, Lord of the Rings like this because the 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 makeup and the time investment and in, in the uh, set design and the fantasy elements and the fantasy creatures and the actual costuming and all the props is going to be so expensive that at that point it's just going to be not quite as feasible. And it won't, let's be honest, certain things just don't look as good live action. But this... The whole shtick here was to make this as believable as possible, which is actually one of the things I think that really helped elevate the game for me, the game show. Game and show? Uh, for me, personally. Because the whole thing felt fairly believable, despite the fact that it was all about a time machine that ends time. <laughs> Anywho. <clears throat> so, you know, specific circumstances is what I'm trying to say. Now, I also very much enjoy the gameplay of this game. I shouldn't say very much. That's a slight exaggeration. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. You know, third-person shooter. Okay. How many... I mean, I actually legitimately feel that they basically copy-pasted the typical third-person shooter gameplay into this game and just snapped that into place because it feels extremely typical. That would have been boring. Not bad, necessarily, but definitely boring. But the inclusion of the time powers, that actually helped to make it legitimately interesting and fun. Um, yeah, I actually jotted down in, in relative order here. So you start with the vision to be able to kind of have your, your detecto vision. Then there's the actual time stop, like, eh, no, kind of move over here. The dodge, which is a duh. The shield, which is certainly useful. The blast, which is what I used primarily by the end there. All of these abilities gave you a toolkit. And one of the things I've all often said is that the way to really make most of these kind of action-adventure generic video games fun is to give the player access to a decent toolkit, which is what this game does. It's not the best gameplay in the world. I'm not trying to oversell it, but I definitely enjoyed it more than I thought I would. And they also do something else I really, really liked gameplay-wise. How many of you guys like Half-Life? I feel like I just talked about this. Because um, I was discussing Half-Life last week when it came to uh, whatever the hell I was playing last week. God, I can't even remember. Uh, right, Metro. God. What? <laughs> as soon as I finished the Metro game, I immediately put it down and picked up this game and just started blazing through it. It's That's my work schedule. Anyways, how many of you guys have played Half-Life, right? Now, Half-Life is, in my opinion, a great game, and I think Half-Life 2 is a great game as well. However, there are several sections, especially in Half-Life 1, although this is also present in 2, where there's a video game puzzle, right? You know what I'm talking about. You have to, it's a jumping puzzle, or it's a platforming puzzle, or it's a navigation puzzle, right? The kind of thing that I usually mentally think of as Zelda puzzles, where it's not like, you know, you've got five red bricks and two yellow ones and you have to make them all red. You know, that's a more traditional puzzle. It's more like you have to maneuver through the environment in a way that gets you from point A to point B or opens the path or unlocks the chest or whatever, right? Thing is, those kind of puzzles, let's just be 100% honest, are generally more video gamey than believable. And there are several puzzles, I'm sure you can think of several as well in other games, especially in the Half-Life series, where it's just like, oh, come on. This is totally just a video game thing. What possible reason is there for this to exist within this place? This makes absolutely no sense, right? Now, that's not the most severe example, but I bring that up because, again, Half-Life and Half-Life 2 are supposed to be fairly grounded and believable, uh, extra-dimensional stuff notwithstanding. Same with this game. 
What this game does, though, is brilliant, and I want to give huge props to whatever team actually came up with this idea. The usage of the time distortions as the puzzles was brilliant and inspired. The fact that, you know, you know, rather than having a giant masher machine that's doing this, what you have is a car that's falling down and then rewinding in time, and then falling down, and then rewinding in time. That's brilliant! It keeps everything nice and grounded and believable, but maintains the core gameplay element of the Zelda puzzle. And so I actually had found myself enjoying the platforming sections way, way more than I actually thought I would. Because when I first saw that this game had platforming sections, I'm like, oh god, this is going to be terrible. Oh yeah, for reference, I was playing this on PC, if anybody's curious of the edition I was playing. Um, so, one of the other things I, I like is that the game does the typical escalation thing, but does so in a way that not only makes sense, but is reflected within the TV show as well. So the first enemies you fight are they're just soldiers. Much later on, you actually have a little scene where you have to fight one guy who has on the, the chrono suit, or what the hell they actually call it, where he can actually move around while in a time fracture and be able to, to do stuff during the, during the stutter. And I liked that because it meant that the enemy was starting to have some of the abilities you were. Because up until that point, you were just oh, absolutely overwhelmingly more powerful than anything else around you. When you move forward a little bit more, we actually start to escalate and escalate. And the only other escalation I really want to mention is the Juggernaut. Because there's this great bit where you first see your first Juggernaut and he tosses a car at you. And it's just, okay, well now i got to deal with that thing. And it even says, deal with the Juggernaut. <laughs> it's okay, yeah. But I like how that progression goes. I, I don't have much else to say about it. It's a fairly typical video gamey thing. But it's still nice progression to see that. And that's my point. This game somehow managed to be very video gamey while still having a fairly well-presented and believable story. And that's the thing I'm really trying to praise for all the things I've been saying over the past couple of minutes here. Uh, looking at my notes here, I don't actually think I have much else to say about the gameplay. <laughs> Sorry, I, I wrote down a line that Lance Reddick said, Do I look threatened to you? And, of course, he shows up in the ending. <laughs> Actually, before we talk anything else, I know this technically doesn't fall under, you know, story. Or gameplay. Woo! God attack. The fact that this game hasn't had a sequel, and to my knowledge has no plans of a sequel, oh, that aggravates me. Because the story just kind of ends on basically a cliffhanger. And it's like, come on! Please? Please continue this? Money! Uh, so, of course, we have the framing device of the narration. This provides two things. First of all, it means we have an automatic method of exposition uh, by the fact that the character is constantly narrating what's going on. It also for for serves as a form of constant foreshadowing. You, know, you had no idea what the significance of this would be or how this would work and blah, blah, blah. It also means that when you very first tell the very brief story to Claire or whatever her name is, uh, you get a lot of little snippets of what's going to come. If I'm being honest, I probably would have ejected at least part of that. Because as much as it's overall well-written, the script and most especially the plot are very tightly knit. The fact is a lot of the characterization kind of feels flat. In fact, I would go so far as to say that really only two of the characters really were well-characterized for me. And both of them were predominantly in the TV section. So maybe three if I'm willing to stretch it. And a lot of the problem with that is because a lot of the characters literally say their character motivations or what they're feeling out loud, either as a part of the narration or because they've started talking to themselves, like when Paul finally starts to lose it. So, 
I'm, I just have a note here that says drama. Yeah, no, that is a, it, it is a bit of an issue. Like I said, cliches. I already talked about that. I do find it very interesting that Paul, who is the one who adamantly believes with, with a fervent certainty that there is no possibility for altering time and you cannot change history whatsoever, is the one who constantly has choices. You notice that, right? Throughout the entire game, the game, the only time you really have a choice that can affect the storyline or, or plotline or the way things go is when you're playing as Paul. When you're playing as Joyce, you just kind of do, or Jack, or whatever her name is, um, you do whatever, you're on rails, basically. You just do whatever is in front of you. Now, that's pr mostly because he's more of the video game side of things and the structure of it, but I find myself wondering if some of that was on purpose, because there is a sort of irony to that. It also is fully in congruence with the rules of time travel and the nature of the plot itself. As we find out, basically all of the plot is something that they sat down and wrote out with the work of several writers, apparently. So credit to them to getting this all working congruently. But they got the idea that someone who has this disease, someone who has basically been doused with chronodon particles and is being irradiated by them, has the ability to see visions, which allows them to kind of project the future and what will happen depending on what they do. That's the power Paul has, and that's what he uses. It's just his visions only go to a certain extent. He doesn't know the exact textbook of what's going to happen once he catches back up with the present, after his jaunt back uh, 17 years, I guess? I, I don't remember the exact timeline. Please forgive me several years into the past. Now, the other thing I find interesting, though, is that it can be debated what type of time travel we're having here. Funnily enough, I just recently had a request from a viewer to go ahead and write down the three types of time travel on the Lorium's page, and I plan to do that. I just haven't had time, because I'm, ironically, because I'm really focusing on these YouTube videos right now. But uh, this... By all accounts, the entire game seems to be a very clear-cut uh, example of Type 1 time travel, which is also my personal favorite type of time travel. See, the funny thing about Type 1 is it requires the most work on behalf of the writers, because you really have to plan everything out and make every sure everything lines up. But it's also the most satisfying in general, because everything can be foreshadowed and planned for basically in advance. There's actually a lot of bits of foreshadowing. My two personal favorites that I jotted down here was the fact that uh, there's this little bit where she's like, no, oh, this was used like eight hours, or uh, this was used at such a time. Well, that was eight hours before we got here. Huh. And we find out later what that's about. And, of course, the one about how the car, about somehow we ended up driving Will's car to his facility because that's what we do at the end of the game. Two nice little details that, of course, make absolutely perfect sense because you already mapped everything out. Because type, type, I'm sorry, I just realized I haven't actually described this even though this should be on my Lorium's page by the time this video goes live. Type 1 time travel is what I like to call time as a linear line. That means everything that has happened always happened and always will happen. Now, there's usually two different ways this is expressed. One is that everything you do is what always happened. There's no actual change to the timeline. The other is a little bit more malleable than that. The other is the idea that there's basically, for lack of a better way to put it, a destiny to time. A... Uh, let's call it an agency or even an intelligence if you want to time, which means that, for example, um, 
Your friend drops off a cliff. No. So you go back in time and try to catch him. And like, oh, thank goodness you saved me. And then like a, a gust of wind picks up and drops him off a cliff. And you're like, no. So you come back and you put a net down there. And it's like, oh, thank God. And he falls into that, bounces off and drops off the cliff. In other words, even though time is technically being altered during each of these alterations, the overall effect is still the same. This game is actually pretty cagey on whether or not it is the former or the latter. Because most of the explanations of, you know, type 1 time travel all seem to indicate that we're not really sure because we don't have an absolute perspective. Uh, the most obvious example is when Paul mentions he goes back to stop that guy from jumping, and he ends up startling and causing him to fall. That could easily have been what happened the first time. It's just we don't really 100% see that because we don't have total knowledge on the circumstances. That's just my personal take on it. And, of course, there's also the fact that we do activate the anti-time device, basically the CFR, by the end of the game, which then stops the fracture, but apparently does not actually stop the end-of-time event because then Joyce actually sees the end-of-time event and, as a consequence, starts to being able to have the same future vision thing that Paul had. And then the end... God, that bothers the crap out of me. Um, so I mentioned that, though, because, again, the plot, the, the main construction of events is extremely tightly written. I also like the fact that there's a little bit of replay value, not just because of the fact that you can go back and catch all those little details as you're going, but because of the fact that you can go back and pick different choices, which allows things to go down a fairly different path. Uh, I, of course, was trying to make Paul generally a better person, someone who was maybe a little bit misguided, someone who was probably given in to despair effectively, but someone who was still legitimately trying to help reality and help the future and try to fix all of this as much as he can. I have been told, didn't have time to play the game a second time, obviously, I have been told that there are many other ways this, this can go, including apparently a very graphic scene of him just murdering What's-Her-Face, uh, the woman who's been helping him this whole time, which is just, wow. <laughs> now, <laughs> I uh, I also want to give special praise to a couple of little elements of the story while I'm thinking about it. I mentioned the Will thing. And by the way, it's huge spoilers, obviously. The fact that Will survived is actually really cool when you think about it. Because as Will himself points out, nothing actually dictated that he died. I saw you die. Well, no. I mean, that's the typical fiction trope, right? If you see someone fall off a cliff, you presume that they died, but, I, I mean, how many times do they end up surviving that? Now, fiction usually uses that as a cliche and kind of a thing, but in this case, it offers a little bit of an out to the time is, an, time is a linear line theory. In other words, I saw a building collapse on you doesn't mean I can't save you. It means I saw a building collapse on you. If I see you... You know, if I leave you and I walk away and five minutes later there's an explosion where you were, that doesn't mean you're dead. And this is then the same way that they're showcasing the idea that they might be able to fix things. In other words, to put it as simply as possible, the idea that's being posited here is that type 1 time travel still applies. It's just they might... The fixing of the time fracture might have always been what will happen. Make sense? Now, I like what they did with Ground Zero. There's a lot of really, really good visual effects. I already mentioned it with regards to gameplay, but there's also some excellent visuals and some excellent, you know, interestingly properly weird story stuff. And you get tiny little snippets of conversations that help to kind of showcase 
the 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 in between, like the fifteen years of exposition that we don't actually see properly on camera in a lot of these little flashes in between Ground Zero. And of course, as we find out, we end up being the ones who actually cause Ground Zero. Yay! But one of my favorites is the is the most is the simplest. We're walking up and you know we look up and we see ourselves climbing over the the fence. And we're like, what the hell? We run up, climb over the fence, and we hear, what the hell? Behind us. Very simple stuff. And we see stuff, you know, being constructed and then deconstructed all very much. The way that they showcase time visually is excellent, is what I'm trying to say. And that shouldn't surprise me from the team that brought us both Alan Wake and Max Payne, but I digress. So then we have the idea of the lifeboat. Now, the lifeboat makes perfect sense from the idea of the perspective of Paul. That time is a linear line, and therefore the end of time is happening, and you can't stop it. The end. Well, what I like about that is that his idea is perfectly logical. Okay, you can't stop it. It is going to happen. The end. But what do we do about that? Do we just accept it? Because that's not what Paul does. He doesn't just say, all right, I'm done. Well, we're all going to die. Peace. No, he does everything in his power to try and ensure that there is a future for humanity, that all these people will be safe within the lifeboat and within this protected bubble of anti-time, basically. They'll still be able to function and move forward. Uh, by the way, this is probably a good time to mention that as much as this, uh, this episode, wow, this game does do some legitimately good and intelligent usage of time as a literary tool, it also likes to break the rules for the sake of, uh, let's call it acceptability. Because, realistically speaking, for example, if time froze, hypothetically speaking, as, as with, which happens with the stutters, you should effectively go blind because all of a sudden there's no you know, light particles hitting your eyes. Little stuff like that. I think we could just gloss over. So let's just call, I'll kind of accept that screw it moving on. I mean, Lord knows they do Hollywood hacking all over the place. This is a good time to start talking about Charlie, actually. Can I just say that Charlie was like my favorite character in this? And I really didn't think he would be. He started off as basically a dick, uh, who was kind of a, a neat freak and completely focused on controlling everything around him. I've actually known people like that. And funnily enough, one of the people I know, yeah, I, I can say present tense, no, I haven't talked to him in a few months, like that, is basically that way for what I believe to be the same reason. A total lack of ability to properly understand people or how to interact with them. So he basically constructed a formula and says, this is how I'm going to act around people. And so he did. Charlie starts to branch out a little bit. And it's worth noting that he does that in spite of the fact that most of the people around him don't really try to flesh him out. Like, they don't embrace him. He just kind of, well, the cards are on the table, the chips are there, and he says, all right, fine, all in. It's an interesting character arc, and what I like most about it is apparently, and I have to say it that way, Charlie's character arc actually varies depending on how you do it. I was really pissed when Hatch killed him. I really was. Like, I was seeing Burke, who's another major TV character, Burke and, and Charlie having their confrontation, and I'm like, oh, Jesus, don't do it, Burke, don't do it, Burke. And then Hatch killed him. <laughs> of course, Hatch we'll talk about more in a second, but I also want to talk about Burke for a little bit. Because Burke was... Uh, the star of the TV show side of things, basically. And the actor does a good job with him, like a really good job, so I want to give the actor praise. But he's a boring character. <laughs> he's... <laughs> I mean, hear me out, okay? He's an incre incredibly competent, like almost superhuman level of competence uh, at gunplay and parkour and fist fighting. You know, he's... He's like, he's like uh, Liam Neeson's character from the ta from Taken series, right? So he's super competent, 
He's got his wife, who he loves dearly, who doesn't know what he really is or does, of course. And he's constantly dri dri driven forward in order to try and fix things in order to help for her. And he's willing to put it on the line for her. And he ends up betraying his company, all that fun stuff, right? Like, that's Burke. Extremely typical type character. And most of his scenes ended up being action scenes as a consequence. But again, the actor does a legitimately good job of it, and I want to give him praise for that too, because he manages to flesh out the character to make him human, for lack of a better way to put it. Anywho, <clears throat> Beth is another interesting character to talk about, because Beth is probably the biggest victim character in all of this. This is a woman who has had to go through hell the long way, if you know what I mean. And uh, it's funny because early on she's like, oh, Okay, you're all right. I'll help you because you're Jack, and therefore I'll help you. What? Okay, and of course he has no idea what's going on. And time goes on, and time goes on, and it gets to the point where she has <laughs> endured all of this and and seen the end of time. Consequently, written it all down as a way of coping with all this crap, and ends up giving it to herself, which guides her through the future. Basically, she's probably the the simplest example of the time loop, the type one time travel in the entire game, and. Uh, poor Beth. <laughs> poor, poor Beth. Um, I'm trying. I'm looking at my notes here. There, I mean, all of the characters deserve at least some kind of a shout-out, but those are the ones I really wanted to comment on, because, like I said, Jack's just not much of a character. It's not a bad thing, per se. The, the writers apparently mentioned something that I myself thought of as well. This feels like Jack's origin story, you know, the beginning of him being the Time Man, or whatever. And it's not like the actor's bad, it's just he's not much of a character. He is the, the guy who's just stumbling through circumstances way beyond his ken and slowly developing superpowers as he does. And he does a good job of that. Kind of the same thing with Paul. Paul is the, the you know, I have ends justify the means. I must do what's necessary to make humanity survive. And you, the player, decide what particular shade of gray he decides to be. Hatch, though. I want to talk about Hatch. Because... One of the things I like most about Hatch, other than the actor who's awesome, is the fact that he's probably the biggest enigma in the entire thing. The presentation of him and the design of him makes it very clear that this is someone who is basically the next tier of Shifter. That he is someone who isn't just like Dr. I can't remember his name. Uh, Dr. Tim? I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. I meant to write it down and then I completely spaced and I was like, ah, whatever. Um... The Doctor who's being kept in that chamber as he was shifting around through time. Except he ha now has a degree of control and ability in order to be able to actually do something within you know normal time space, unlike other people who can't. And it's very clear he has some kind of goals and dreams. I mean, he even says this straight up to Burke. My world, the world that I'm building, will be balanced. My world will be better. He also is in a perfect position to manipulate everyone at every step, and... I mentioned earlier that quote, do I look threatened to you? He never looks threatened. He always looks completely on top of his game. And I get the very strong impression that he is legitimately working towards this future in which either the world is acclimated to him or the world is just for him, one of the two. In other words, a, a situation in which you know he, he is the only one who is now comfortable in a world that is built for him, or he has moved people forward to become like him in the new world, regardless of the time thing. This is also kind of lined up with the idea that the, the, the end of time does happen, because someone like Hatch, theoretically, 
would actually be able to endure beyond the end of time. Anywho, I also... <laughs> He, he's, there's a few great scenes of his, but one, one that comes to mind immediately is they go to arrest him on Paul's orders. And he gets on the elevator, and the elevator doors close, and the elevator doors open, and he adjusts his suit and walks out, and all the guards are dead. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, that just amused the hell out of me. Actually, I mentioned one other thing about Burks in my notes here. I'm sorry, I actually want to bring this up really quick. There's a scene where Burke has to kill a guy who is threatening his wife. I don't mean the one where he slits his throat, although that's awesome. Okay, I'm looking forward to killing your wife. There we go. That's that dealt with. But no, I actually more mean... Oh, yeah, it's another way he's a typical character. He gets more injured the further on into the, sh the game we get. Anyways, no, I'm talking about the scene where he's at the hospital and his wife, the nerf, is there. And he has to kill someone to save her. And she, of course, freaks out and just goes running. And he has to calm her down and explain to her that this is him and this is what I do and this is what I'm good at and I'm capable of it. They gave me balance. They gave me a purpose. But this isn't me. I, I don't want to... It, 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 it just the way he talks to her, it, it is, like I said, that's why I give credence to the actor because it's a very human scene and it does help to flesh him out in what little small ways it can. So let's talk about the final boss which was not great. The presentation managed to salvage it a bit. But we don't actually fight Paul. And something about that feels like a huge disappointment to me because he has all the powers we have, and more, actually. We've seen him use them. But that's not what happens. Instead, we fight a, a generic bunch of goons, and then he shockwaves us, and then we shoot him a few times, and goons shockwave shoot. I guess to some extent or another that makes sense. Remember, these are normal people. I mean, yeah, they have superpowers, but as I like to say, if you shot Cyclops in the head, he'd still die. Doesn't matter, they can shoot beams out of his eyes, right? In other words, unless you have increased durability or invulnerability or regeneration or something to help you survive, you're still just as squishy as the next guy. You fall off a cliff, you're still going to break your legs at best, right? In other words, it makes sense that they go this route of him basically only being able to put up the shield, like you can, and then shooting him a few times. I mean, it only took me two rounds to bring him down. Two uh, waves, I should say. So that makes sense, but I still think they could have done more with that. I don't know. I, I feel like it was just kind of a disappointing climax. And then we find out that the person you've been talking to this whole time works for Hatch! Da -da -da -da, and you now have the choice... Do I work with Hatch? And, and I already talked about that, the fact that we now have the same disease Paul did. Yay! And Hatch flat out implies, so yeah, we could uh, help you survive now that you have the same problem. The end. My biggest complaint about this game is the fact that it doesn't have a sequel. And I think that speaks well of it. I don't actually remember who requested this one because uh, my notes are all over the place. Maybe I'll find out by the time I do the editing for this to be able to put it in the te teaser. But whoever did, thank you, because this was actually a treat to go through in a game I probably would have never actually looked at otherwise. Regardless, I hope you guys enjoyed. I'll see you next time.